So getting us up to speed, Mark begins his gospel by introducing us to John the Baptist. Right after that, Jesus comes on the scene and presents himself to John the Baptist to be baptized by John the Baptist, just like everyone else, though Jesus was without sin. John uh, resists for a minute and then relents and baptizes Jesus. Jesus heads off right after that, empowered by the Spirit who comes down uh, visibly on him with the words, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Uh, Anointed in God's Spirit, heads off uh, and actually led by the Spirit into the desert or wilderness or solitary place where he's tempted for 40 days by the devil, comes out of that unscathed and begins to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe because the kingdom has come near. And as he does that, he begins drawing disciples to himself, uh, men who will be his students, who will apprentice with him, who will learn from him, who will grow with him, who will be his disciples and followers, and who one day will be equipped to do the things that Jesus had done, was doing, and would do. Now we pick up uh, from chapter 2. Jesus' disciples have been watching Jesus pray, preach, teach, cast out demons, heal, and now they've got more. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Listen closely. This is the Word of God. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And at some point, Jesus' life, his adult life, as an adult, he moved from the little town of Nazareth up in the hills, the nobody, nothing, little, nobody heard of it town, down to the bigger town or almost city of Capernaum, which was on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Great Sea, at a crossroads of some major roads where uh, there was more life, more hustle, more bustle, but yet it was still far enough away from the government center of Rome and Tiberias that Jesus to some degree could fly under the radar, which is what he wanted to do. But his flying under the radar lasts only one day because the first time he preaches in the synagogue in Capernaum, he inadvertently exposes a demon who makes a loud shriek and a big ruckus. Jesus casts him out. And by that evening, hundreds of people have shown up at the home where Jesus was staying, also wanting to have demons cast out of them, and for them to be healed. But all of this quickly accelerates Jesus' renown, which is not what Jesus was looking for, at least not, not at that time in his ministry. And so he again heads back to the, the hill country, to small towns where he can again hopefully fly under the radar as his time had not yet come. And now at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus returns to Capernaum, Mark says that he had come home. The Greek most literally reads, he was at home. And this home where Jesus was, was both the city of Capernaum and the house where he was. Probably still Peter's house. And, it, and as it was when Jesus left, the place, the house around the house was again packed with people. But this time, not like last time where the people were all just outside. Now the people were inside, packed, crammed, breaking every fire marshal rule. Jesus likely begins with a teaching to his disciples. 
sharing with them words, tutoring them, mentoring them on the word of God in the kingdom. And slowly people come in and come in and come in and they want not just to hear God's word, but to be healed and to have their demons cast out. So much so that the place is packed with people, standing room only, shoulder to shoulder, no room for social distancing. People are on top of each other in the house, looking through the windows, in the doorway, outside the doorway, no way even near to, to get near to this house. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And the word here is presumed to be the word of God, uh, God's kingdom coming, God's kingdom arriving, God's kingdom available to them. The good news that God's kingdom was now accessible to them in the here and now for them to take for them to receive. Some men came bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And now this bull foursome who had a friend or maybe a family member are getting as close to Jesus as they can. We don't know exactly their relationship. We don't know much about this man other than that he was a paralytic. He was paralyzed. We don't know for how long. We don't know anything about their faith or his faith. Somebody, though, wants him close to Jesus. Maybe they want him. Maybe he wants them and they're doing him a favor. Maybe all of them. We don't know. But so the five of them get around Jesus. They get as close to him as they come. They see the outside stairway, which was typical of a house at that time. The stairs were outside of a home instead of inside. The roof of a home at that time was made by large beams that were placed across the walls and then smaller boards across them and then sticks across them and then thatch and that and then a mud that was packed and rolled and hardened by the sun and by the dry air so that on top of a house, a family would typically go to get fresh air, uh, welcome guests, offer hospitality, eat meals, things like that. And so these men, and imagine trying to move a full-grown adult who's not able to help you with that task. They're dragging, they're lifting, they're tugging up the outdoor stairwell, and then they start literally digging into some stranger's roof. I've preached a lot of sermons over the years and had lots of distractions, crying babies, cell phones, uh, hearing aids that buzz, 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 all sorts of things. Nobody likes distractions when they're preaching, when they're teaching. And instead of having an ideal environment, Jesus begins to be pelted by things falling out of the roof. It's all neat and clean in Sunday school, but literally as they take apart the roof and dig into it and their shovels go through it, pebbles, rocks, sticks, large chunks of debris begin to fall around Jesus. Jesus' response is interesting. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man's son, 
dearly beloved, child, dear one. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus could have reacted with contempt. Jesus could have said, what are you doing? Jesus said, that's not very thoughtful. This isn't your house. Jesus could have said, I'm busy. Get in line. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone. Go their thoughts. And now Mark has introduced all of the characters in the scene and all of them are different. All of them have a different perspective. All of them are there in different ways and for different reasons. Mark says Jesus sees their faith. And again, we don't know if their faith means the paralyzed man had a hopeful confidence. But at least the four men have some degree of confidence. They've gone to all of trouble. Who exactly, though, believed, trusted, had hope doesn't seem to matter all that much to Mark, does it? And Jesus goes on with his gracious, eager response. He doesn't wait for the men to speak. He doesn't wait for a request. He doesn't wait for a prayer. He doesn't chastise them for ripping open a stranger's roof and risking injuring him. Jesus' response is, Son, son, your sins are forgiven. Which is fine, but probably didn't sit well with the men who had gone to all of the trouble to lower this other man through the roof. Just as it probably wouldn't sit well for any one of us if someone walks into the hospital and Dr. Paul or Dr. Jeannie says, your sins are forgiven. It's not why we're here. If that wasn't obvious. If we were out on the street or if you had an acquaintance or a friend and someone told you about an ailment, they had cancer. For example, friend, your sins are forgiven. That's not going to go over very well. It didn't go over especially well there. It doesn't go over especially well here in our world today. Likewise, the teachers of the law, literally the scribes, but the word scribe to us in English gives the impression of someone who just takes notes or a secretary. And so the translators of the New International Version say teachers of the law, which is what a scribe was, someone who was authoritative in the scriptures and in the word of God and someone who taught that. Someone who protected the institution of the law of Moses, who had authority in that world, the scribes, the teachers of the law. Somehow some of the teachers of the law had squeezed in to hear Jesus. And they were thinking to themselves when they heard Jesus, this is blasphemy. Consistent with Jewish Jewish thought throughout the Old Testament, only God forgives sins. Only God can forgive sin. Only God. And all sins, and all sins are an affront first and foremost to and against our Creator. So it is God's place and God alone has authority and power to forgive sin. The four men and the paralytic haven't gotten what they came for. The Jewish, Jewish religious leaders And authorities are aghast, offended, put off, and angry. And then Mark writes, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why why are you thinking these things? 
Which is easier? To say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. And when Jesus or God says that's the equivalent of doing, in the beginning God spoke things into creation and they happened. Jesus speaks things into happening and they happen. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this which is echoes back in chapter 1 of Jesus' first encounter with the public in the synagogue, we have never heard such authoritative teaching. Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts. Jesus knew. Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Which is easier? Neither one is easy. If you've ever been tasked or needed to forgive someone, you know that that's not easy work. Is there an amen? We think the answer to Jesus' question is, it's easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven. Those are the easier words. Of course they are. But if one connects saying and doing and saying in action, well, then saying one's sins are forgiven. And so actually assuring a person that their sins are forgiven or securing their forgiveness, the forgiveness of a person's sin is not so easy. Jesus is asking, is it easier to forgive a person's sins or to heal a person's legs? And while Jesus knows that in the minds of most of those listening to him speak, they would be thinking that declaring a person's sins to be forgiven would be the much easier thing. He knows that the opposite is true. For human beings, forgiving another person that has transgressed against you is hard work. And for such, for God is costly. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know, Jesus wanted people to know. He wanted people to know that forgiveness was possible. And as part of this thing called the kingdom of God, forgiveness was available, accessible to them. In the first chapter of Mark's gospel, Jesus preaches with authority. We talked way back then about that word about ekousia, authority, power, the right, the privilege, the position to be able to do something. In the first chapter, in the first element of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus preaches with authority. And the people were amazed. They were astonished. We'd never heard anything like this, they said, in the midst of their scribes. And then Jesus reveals his authority over demons. And then he demonstrates his authority over disease. And then his authority over a person's social, familial, and psychological reality that we looked at last night. And over the entire Jewish religious structure and institution. He exercised his authority to cleanse a person and restore them. And now Jesus claims to have authority and the power 
to forgive sin, which as the Jews understood it could only be done by God. And so we see this progression of authority, 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 power, power. And so as more supporting evidence of Mark's chapter 1, verse 1 thesis that Jesus was Messiah and Son of God, Jesus reveals another piece of the story. He who was one with the Father and in whom the fullness of God dwelt had and has the authority and the will, and the will to forgive sin. Do you remember last week? I know you can heal. I know you can make me clean, Jesus. Will you? And Jesus' response was yes. Here Jesus has the power and authority to forgive, and he does. The picture slowly coming together in Mark's gospel and for Jesus' disciples and for the world that Jesus is unique among all other people, Messiah, Son of God. And forgiving people is what God does in Jesus Christ. We don't, in the narrative of Mark, yet know how that happens. The role of two wooden beams in that transaction has not yet been revealed. But it will. For now, this is clear, more important than being physically whole in Jesus' eyes. More important from Jesus' perspective than being healed physically, for which we often pray and seek and work and labor and pursue, is being forgiven. Is being forgiven. But so you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I tell you, get up and walk. And everyone needs to be forgiven. Forgiveness is the elimination or the eliminating of that which comes between people or between people and God or between groups of people or between nations. Now is the time for forgiveness in our nation. It's always time for forgiveness in our world. It's always time for forgiveness in our lives because things constantly come between us and others. And we constantly need to forgive and be forgiven. That's why uh, the, L, the thing called forgiveness is a part of Jesus' prayer for his disciples. That he teaches his disciples to pray, that we pray regularly. Forgive us our debts. We need to be forgiven continually. As we forgive our others, we need to engage in that enterprise of forgiveness with one another continually. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or those who have sinned against us or those who have trespassed. We need to build bridges where there have been chasms. We need to knock down walls that have been built up between us. Five years ago, a prominent leader in the United States was asked, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? Someone to whom many Christians in America look up to. And the person's response was, I don't really do that. I've never really done that. I don't, I don't, I don't think that way. If I do something wrong, I just try to fix it or get it right. 
That's not the way it works with God. But many people in our world think in that way. That sin is not a real thing. That our rebellion is not a really serious thing, something to be taken seriously. But if you doubt your own sin, ask the person next to you in the pew this morning. Ask the people you live with, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people who spend the most time with you, the people who know you best. And even they don't know everything. Even they don't know what's in and on our hearts. We had a conversation last Sunday evening with a a bright young uh, person who said, do you think it's possible to go 24 hours without sinning? And the answer to that question was, no. It's just not. Even if you lock yourself in a box and don't interact with other people and turn all of your wicked thoughts off, at the end of the 24 hours, you come come out of that box saying, wow, I did not sin. I'm amazing. I'm amazing, which is what? Pride, which is one of the seven deadly sins and what C.S. Lewis calls the greatest or the worst, the mother of all sins, the source of all sins, which is consistent with going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. None of us is sinless. None of us, not one. Everyone needs to be forgiven, whether we acknowledge that or not. Carl Menninger, Dr. Carl Menninger was a psychiatrist, early part of the 20th century, uh, Harvard-trained, devoted Christian, eventually established the largest psychiatric training center in the world, wrote many, many important books. He said, he once said, that if he could, quote, convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could, good at, could walk out that next day. If he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day. R.C. Sproul is, uh, was a uh, highly renowned uh, pastor, theologian, professor, author. He tells a story of how in South Florida, though he was the pastor of a large church and had a full plate and uh, writing and speaking engagements and contracts and a really, really full plate and was sought after, said a number of years ago that he was offered a, what he called a princely sum of money a princely sum of money if he would come on to staff of a prominent psychiatrist and work in his clinic in South Florida. Sproul declined the very generous and tempting, in some ways, offer. But he said, why are you even interested in me? I'm a pastor, I'm a theologian, I'm an author. Why are you interested in me coming on staff of your psychiatric clinic? To which the doctor responded, not 75, but 95. He said, 95% of the people I see really just need to be forgiven. They really just need to know that they can be forgiven. They really just need to know 
that God loves them and that forgiveness is available. D.A. Carson has written, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior. We do all kinds of things. We jump through all kinds of hoops internally, deep inside to excuse our sin, to ignore our sin, to pretend that it's not there, to pretend that it doesn't matter, to pretend that we can forgive ourselves. You can't forgive yourself when you've transgressed against someone else. And all sin, according to the scriptures, and we must understand, is ultimately against the one who created us, to whom we belong. The one who is righteous and holy and loving and good. And we have destroyed what he has created. Ultimately, our sin is against him and him alone. And forgiveness is possible. The more I've thought about this the last day or two, the more I've had to go deeper and deeper and deeper into who I am, into my psyche, into my heart, into my history. And I think there's a lot of truth in what Menninger said and what R.C. Sproul relayed. And really what they were doing was really agreeing with truth that was already revealed in the Scriptures and by Jesus. Max Lucado tells a story uh, about a father and a son the son whose name was Pepe. And as a young man in Latin America in high school, he went his own way. He did his own thing. He showed no respect to his father. He disregarded him in all things. He walked out of the household as an older teenager, said, I don't want to have anything to do with this family. I've got enough wisdom and smarts on my own. I can handle life. He went like that to his dad, to his family, to his community, and left. Years went by. The father was brokenhearted, but wanting to respect his son's wish, his autonomy, his life. But a day came that he thought, this is too painful, this is too much, I can't let this go on, I've got to at least try. He took out an ad in the newspaper, a huge prominent ad and he ran it for a week and it said Pepe I love you please come home let's talk let's visit let's reconnect love dad and as a part of that note it said meet me at this monument in the center of the city on Saturday morning at nine o'clock if you're there I'll be there I'll be there will you be there and so Saturday morning, the father got up early, got dressed up, wanted to be on time, went to this monument in the city square, headed that direction, turned a corner, 
And they are at the base of the monument. We're 50 young men named Pepe. Taking Jesus at his word, we may have missed part of the message as children in Sunday school. It's really sort of dramatic. They're carrying a man who can't walk. They're digging through a roof. They're lowering him down. He enters the building through the roof. He walks out through the door. Miracle. And in verse 12, Mark tells us all of the people were praising Jesus. The tragedy is that they were praising Jesus because the man was walking. And Jesus' message was greater than the ability to walk is the forgiveness of one's sins and their restoration to the Father who loves them. Let's pray. We sit and we stand and we kneel before you, God, in need of your mercy and as recipients of your grace. Remind us of our need, not that the guilt might be piled on. We have enough of that deep down inside, outwardly and inwardly, consciously and unconsciously. And that has its place. But forgive our sins. Today and tomorrow and the next day. Free us from the condemnation of doubt. Free us from the condemnation of fear. Free us, free us from guilt. Set us free in your love. Set us free in your mercy. Set us free to yourself. Set us free for yourself. Set us free for ourselves. And in all of these things, may you be glorified throughout the earth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.